This is UCD Business Impact. Each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, the winter is coming along, not too far away, staring us in the face, and that will mean a lot more time indoors to drink a coffee. And we hope on this podcast, listen to us here at Business Impact. And we've got a few difficult months ahead, no doubt, but there are both opportunities and threats involved. And we're looking at both of those in today's edition. We're going to look at the the good and bad life before, after, uh, present and uh, every other tense about COVID, but particularly at the concept of agility, which we think is is really important to the business world. And the guest today to guide me through all of that is an old friend and acquaintance of mine from the financial crisis, and that is Professor Eamon Walsh, who is PwC Professor of Accounting at the Michael Smurfett Graduate Business School. Eamon is also a former Dean of the Smurfett School and a Chair of the Accounting Department. Now, Eamon has a whole widespread, diverse bag of interest, really, from financial analysis to the way companies are valued, equity valuations. He looks a lot at markets around the world, particularly in relation to the US, the securities market there. And he's done all sorts of projects overseas and in, uh, here in Ireland, worked at times in the IMF, the United Nations, and he's lectured all over the world as well in places like um, NYU and also the LSE. So Eamon is going to talk me through a lot of what's going on in the business world. Eamon, of course, was a veteran like myself of the financial crisis, and we'll be talking a little bit later about whether there's any kind of a comparison between those two um, historical periods. So, Eamon, you're very welcome along to the podcast. Yeah, good afternoon. It's it's great to be here. Maybe we're meant to say good morning or good evening or yeah, good night. So whatever time of day it is, uh, that's <laughs> what we're saying to each other, right? And I hope I haven't built you up too much. I don't want to put any undue pressure on you here for the next half an hour. Yeah, I, I think it'd be better just if you turned around and you just said, I, I, get the, I get the dirtiest job in, in the School of Business. I teach the first year accounting course. Yes, and, and you've know, you know virtually anyone who's in Irish business because they've all done your course. They've all been in your lecture hall. That's what people tell me. Uh, well, I, I don't know. Like, I, I suppose I, I'm, I'm getting a bit long in the tooth now. So, um, yes, uh, some people are probably familiar with uh, what I talk about. Yeah. Well, listen, we'll crack on in. We've got a lot to cover. Um, One of the quotes I wanted to kick off the conversation with is from Warren Buffett, who famously, of course, said, you can only find out who is swimming naked when the tide finally goes out. And the reason I mentioned that quote, which is often threaded through, I'm I'm sure you've seen it in a few of the academic essays that you mark um, from students. But the reason I bring it up is it is at a time of crisis and at a time of deep downturn in the economy, that we see the fragilities, we see the, the the bareness of a business model, or we see how an organization has been misbehaving, maybe they've been misrepresenting their financial statements to the outside world, etc. So we see all these sins, we see all the scar tissue underneath the business. I mean, just looking at COVID, it's been with us now for many, many months. We've seen a few companies like uh, Wirecard in Germany, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But just taking a, a step back a little bit, Eamon, do you expect this to be a period of very dramatic change in the business world? And what kind of change are you expecting to see? I always think, uh, I mean, if you look at any sort of business conference or anything like that, uh, for the last 30, 40 years, big sign up. This year it's different. Uh, we're in a period of unprecedented change. 
Um, and, you know, this is a time for action. Uh, we're in a volatile, uncertain world. And I had an old professor uh, who I worked with for many years, one of my mentors at the London School of Economics. And uh, he sadly passed away now. And he used to say, phooey. And you'd sort of say, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, these people go about talking about unprecedented change. They've no idea. What about the Great Fire of London? That was a period of unprecedented change 400 years ago. And, you know, so there is this thing that we live through where we're sort of saying, oh, yeah, everything's changing so quick, so quick, so quick. But this is largely a conceit. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm generally quite cynical about that. Uh, you know, for example, um, things move very slowly. Uh, if you think back 20 years ago, Emmett, uh, you remember Amazon came on, on the scene. And at that time, Amazon was concerned with competing with bookstores. And everybody said, brick and mortar bookstores are dead. And what has happened? Well, brick and mortar, and that's the time when we came up with this brick and mortar 20 years ago. Brick and mortar was still around. They were building shopping centers in Dundrum, for heaven's sake, in the last wee while. You know, so to say brick and mortar was dead didn't really happen. Go back two generations. Uh, there was a guy called Alvin Toffler, who was one of the main futurists two, 50 years ago. And he said, you know, in no time at all, the information age is going to lead to everybody working from home and they're going to be living in electronic cottages. And the whole idea was we'd have IT would be enabling this distribution of work in a way that was unprecedented. I, it's been 50 years and it hasn't happened. So, you know, generally, life actually moves much more glacially uh, than we believe. But the last six months, I believe, you can no longer say phooey. Uh, we're living through a period of unprecedented change. And uh, if you ever wondered what a volatile, uncertain world looks like, you're getting to see it now. Here it is. You know, so this is uh, really, I think, unprecedented. So it's really happening. This is for real, is what you're saying. I mean, you, you've, as I said earlier in the intro, you've put hundreds, thousands of students through your classes in first year accounting. So I'm going to start at the roots of what you do and what you teach, which is accounting. So this unprecedented change, uh, the people that have to deal with it first, I mean, investors sometimes don't get hit until later on and the public can be somewhat insulated by government spending and so on from the effects of it. Um, but the people who have to kind of first encounter it are the accountants because they've got to measure things and they've got to recognize certain things. They've got to look at what the value of something is. So how do you see the profession you, you, you kind of are familiar with yourself? How do you see that in the first instance dealing with this, as you say, unprecedented, non or full FUE version of change? Okay, well, I think what we have to do first is to sort of... Uh break this out a little bit. So, you know, there, there's three things going on. Firstly, you know, COVID is clearly uh, accelerating many of these trends. So telework, uh, decline of retail, we're beginning to see that in all its glory in the last six months. Even today, believe it or not, uh, Clint Eastwood has now started campaigning to get government support to keep cinemas alive because video streaming has killed the cinema. You know, so we're seeing this acceleration, but we're also seeing, and you know, I think this is really important, we're seeing a reversal of, you know, the world coming together in the way that it's been coming together. So, you know, China and the United States, 
you can sort of see this is going to go into reverse. Um, closer to home within Europe, you know, this idea of a common European home is getting fractured. Uh, things like Brexit, things like Central Europe and so on. So we're seeing, you know, COVID is bringing out both it's an accelerator of slow-moving trends, be it retail or be it, say, China versus the United States and so on. Uh, the other thing, which we're not really seeing because everybody is locked in their wardrobes, is the potentially existing inequalities are being deepened, especially outside of Europe. So the United States potentially, but also middle-income countries. Like we don't have people showing up on our television from uh, from. Uh, less developed countries saying, how is COVID affecting those countries? What has been the impact on economies that depend overwhelmingly on tourism as a result of COVID? How are they getting along? What's going to happen? So, you know, inequality is important. And then it's against that that we can sort of think a little bit about the accounting bit. So let's start at the big stuff. The big stuff is China versus the United States in terms of audit. So at the moment, a US, we have regulation of auditing in the United States. But supposing that we have a reporting firm in China, there is at the moment no opportunity for oversight of the auditing work that's conducted in China. Now, you can understand a lot of this because, you know, a country would say, well, you know, outsiders have been trying to influence us for too long. We're, we're not going to, you know, allow this sort of, you know, jurisdictional influence upon what we're doing. We didn't get to write these rules. So uh, first aspect is that this audit issue uh, is going to become quite key. Um, and then it's going to be, you know, if you think uh, what has happened, you know, as a consequence of this is, for example, Alibaba, which is the, the Chinese equivalent of Amazon, is now looking to list in Hong Kong. So we can sort of see a sort of a fracturing of capital markets. This has huge impacts for auditors simply because auditors are meant to be sort of watchdogs in these global capital markets. So, you know, this, these shifting sands uh, and, and a potential reversal of globalization in this way uh, could lead to a fracturing of capital markets that has a big impact on audit firms. Then more locally in terms of COVID and so on, you could think about how do you do an audit if your employees are locked in their wardrobes at the end of a laptop. So in the good old days, and you may remember this, Emmett, uh, you know, you used to, the, the fellas who were working for audit firms, you'd go out New Year's Eve, they couldn't go out drinking because they had to be up the following day to go and count the cars or count the cows or count something else to audit inventory. How does that all operate? when your, your, your people who are meant to be going out inspecting the equipment, seeing if stuff exists, if they're locked in their wardrobes, or if they have to send out a letter saying, uh, we'll be showing up next week to check if the cows are in the field. Uh, like that really does undermine things and give rise potentially to unscrupulous operators to take advantage of this. Then the other thing is the capacity of the audit industry. Because if you think, accounting is much more about the risks to the downside. So we now have, a, you know, a, a sort of a fixed supply of auditors, but we have a lot of industries that are really quite troubled. So uh, that's, they're going to require a lot more attention. And the question is whether the capacity exists to give all that attention 
to a set of industries, all of which are troubled at the same time. So we could think through, there's airlines, theme parks, casinos, cinemas, restaurants, retail, you know, these all will require a special consideration from auditors. Then move on to the consequences of those industries and things not going too well. We then have the possibility of, in the financial sector of bad debts, where they have extended credit to theme parks, airlines, casinos, cinemas, restaurants, retail. They've extended the credit and um, now we have to audit it in some way. So I, I, I think that's going to be pre-challenged challenging for the audit industry and one of the companies that's already in the news aim and i know you watch um, accounting scandals i know you have an interest in them this company wirecard a german company a listed company so this was no kind of a small firm this was a company that was in payment processing we don't really know this is a, a dynamic story so neither of us could really know even uh, all of this or even partially of it but it seems that the Financial Times have been publishing very um, unfavorable journalism about this company for quite some time, even before COVID came along, one particular reporter in the Financial Times. And it seems that the German authorities, uh, Baffin, which is the regulator in Germany, actually conducted an investigation of the Financial Times itself rather than the company. Now, this has all been superseded since then, and there is full investigations, and the company's gone into insolvency. I mean, I know we don't have time, and I know that it's not something that either of us want to discuss in too much detail, but is that the kind of example of what you're talking about, where something, money has gone missing here, as far as I know, 1.9 billion euros is missing from a bank account in the Philippines, which on its surface wouldn't encourage you or doesn't sound too auspicious. Is that the kind of company that we can expect more of? And do you also think the regulators, once again, have not met the standard that many of us would hold them to? Okay, I, so I, I think the big thing here is that a lot of the world is built on dreams. So, um, you know, people see something that's successful and believe because they believe it's successful that it must be successful. So people can get seduced into all sorts of funny stuff. In Ireland, it happened to us when we all fell in love with Anglo-Irish Bank and we went around to AIB and Bank of Ireland and said, why can't you be more like Anglo-Irish Bank? So you, you can sort of see, we, we all get invested in these sort of stories. So uh, what happens? Well, you get things go wrong. So uh, Wirecard, this was the sort of great tech hope on the German stock exchange. It was something, you know, uh, you know, Germans great at automobiles, great at other things, but tech, you know, this was, you know, a top German company in tech and everybody believed uh, it was going to do great things. So, um, you know, everybody felt this is great. Uh, then investors suspend their skepticism. They say, oh my goodness, this is going to go on forever and everybody is bought into the thing. And then what happens? Well, the Financial Times for a number of years had been sort of doing stories which suggested that all was not what it seemed at Wirecard. And what happened? Well, the German regulators went out and shot the messenger. So who are the people that we expect are going to tell us about when things are going wrong. First thing is the media. So in the case of Wirecard, it was the Financial Times. And the second and possibly more controversial group, but they do keep markets honest, are short sellers. Mm. So short sellers are people who sell shares that they don't own in the hope that the share price will go down. So there were journalists and short sellers 
saying Wirecard is a turkey. And the German authorities, rather than sort of going and saying, well, is Wirecard a turkey? They went along and said, well, what we're going to do is, number one, we're going to start chasing the Financial Times for spreading lies and rumours. Um, and number two, we're going to ban short selling. And if you think you've heard about this before, you have. Way back in March 2008, Anglo-Irish Bank was rumoured to be a turkey. And instead, the Irish financial regulator said they were going to go and investigate these evil hedge funds, which were saying bad things about Anglo-Irish Bank. And um, the Minister for Finance in September 2008 banned short selling of bank shares in Ireland. So, um, you know, that's what happened in Ireland. Same thing happens in Germany. Why is it worrying? Well, in Ireland, we can live with a green jersey, like we're the little boys on the edge of Europe. But you would have thought that the Germans would have grown-ups in the room. And the worry here is that they did not. So, you know, I, I think that's the first thing we might be concerned about with Wirecard. And there's a second thing. And the second thing is there's some reports coming out this week in the Financial Times of all places, which are suggesting that the auditor of Wirecard, that its employees reported that there were attempts made to bribe those employees back about four years ago. Now, if somebody is aiming to, you're, you're an auditor, and you know somebody is offering to bribe your employees, and you become aware of this, I would have thought, now, I don't know, but I would have thought this is a bit of a red flag. So I think if these reports are true, that you know, there was signals way back three to four years ago that there was something wrong, and those signals weren't properly investigated. Again, you know, it's too early to tell, but it could be potentially very serious if it is true. And Eamon, what we see in these things, and Enron is a great example, a whole load of bad behaviours occur, the politicians pick it up, the public pick it up, the regulators pick it up, we change the law, we bring in new provisions, whether it's through Congress or Dáil Éireann or the EU Parliament, uh, and, and you would think on the surface this is something that the accountancy profession would be resisting, but is that necessarily the case? Isn't it often the case that these reform efforts actually create a whole set of winners, bizarrely, and sometimes almost uh, kind of unravel what we're trying to do? Well, I, I don't think now we need to get into winners per se. <laughs> I, I think it's probably better to say that, you know, when people go out and do things, it can have unanticipated consequences. So, you know, we, we don't need to have a conspiracy theory here, but we could draw attention to unanticipated consequences. For example, in Germany, um, for Wirecard, they had set up a financial reporting regulator, but that financial reporting regulator was completely underfunded. And so it was outgunned and outmaneuvered. Um, and, and that's part of what's, what happened. But what's going to happen as a result of this? We pour lots of resources into regulation. So we put scarce social resources into regulation. For example, in this country, uh, we didn't take banking regulation especially seriously before 2008. Now we have a huge investment in this country in banking regulation. Now, uh, what, what's the consequence of all this? Uh, well, the consequence is that um, the basic thing is that you have unscrupulous, dishonest people kicking around who set up firms or whatever, and they lie to investors. But when everything stops, when the music stops, 
the, you know, we possibly will put somebody in jail uh, for being unscrupulous and doing those things. But we'll also say we need to refine and invest in our regulatory structures. Um, and to some extent, if you think about investing in regulatory structures, if we say accounting is part of the problem, and again, uh, Anthony Hopwood, uh, my, my mentor in London all those years ago who said phooey, he always said, you know, like there, there may be a professional interest in um, sort of saying that accounting was part of the cause. Because if you do that, it will lead to greater regulation and oversight. Um, but the irony of most of this is that it gives rise, number one, to more billable hours. So, you know, if there's greater oversight and greater regulation, it means that you have to do a lot more work to complete an audit. Uh, that's point one. And point two, the more we regulate, there's an element of it squeezes out smaller operators. So compliance costs are a big part of any regulatory story. So what you can get as a result is further concentration. So if we consider, say, in banking in Ireland at the moment, if you wanted to start a bank tomorrow, it would cost you a fortune to jump through all of the hoops to start a little bank because of all the regulation we have in place today. So as a result, you get greater concentration in an industry. And auditing is no different. For example, Enron led to uh, one audit firm disappearing, which means we're now down to four audit firms. And potentially, we could, we could have even greater concentration occurring and also a squeezing out of the next tier of audit firms, simply because as things become more complex, it means there are higher fixed costs of compliance. So, I mean, when you talk about accountancy earlier on, you were talking about the guy counting the cows. So that's one part of the profession. As you then said, you're coming into the compliance piece where accountants sort of start to look like more like lawyers, you know, and they're about how do you accounting standards? How do you measure things? What are the standards for doing this? And um, so you're going to get a lot more of that part of the profession growing and the more practical person counting the cows less. Is that possibly one way to look at it? I don't think it's really that simple. It's more... We, we basically end up, um, if you consider, say, banking, for example. 2008, the idea was that the losses uh, reported by, by banks uh, arising from bad lending, those losses were reported too little and too late. As a result, we now have a new regime for dealing with credit losses for the banking sector. But this has led to... Uh, you know, sort of very, very complex modeling, a far greater investment of resources into understanding how these estimates are being made. And so it would mean for a smaller audit firm to have the capacity and the capability to do an audit of a financial institution that it would be becoming more and more difficult to do so. So it's sort of a squeezing out of, um, you know, sort of smaller audit firms simply because life becomes more complex. So the barrier to entry into that profession gets higher and higher for the smaller, more entrepreneurial new practices and so on. That's yeah, essentially what so, you're talking about. So it becomes very tough. You know, if you think back in the day um, when we were counting the cows, so you go back two generations ago, uh, there, there was an expectation if you uh, qualified as a chartered accountant that you could start your own practice, uh, put a shingle up somewhere down in the middle of Leitrim, and you could do tax returns and audits for local firms. I think it's probably far more challenging today for an independent professional 
to start up. Instead, one has to uh, work within a larger firm um, and, and it simply reflects increased complexity, increased compliance costs. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, Eamon, is just sort of broadening out a little bit, Bill. I don't want to I don't want to pester you about accountancy for this entire conversation. So let's broaden out a little bit and talk about the state of the world. Um, we have lived in through a, a very kind of halcyon years, decades really, of free trade. You could order what you wanted to your home. You could go online and get it, reasonable prices. There was no global conflicts, at least in Europe or North America. Obviously, we're in other parts of the world. But we've been kind of living a reasonably high-quality global life. You know, there hasn't been sort of any barriers, tariffs, and someone put down. Whether it be President Trump or President Xi or other actors on the stage, we seem to be entering into a different period of protectionism, um, autocracy, um, self-sufficiency is even coming back. Maybe we should bring back Sean Lamas and Eamon de Valera, who, who tried this experiment in the 1930s. But, I mean, all of these things are changing. So for the graduates of today, can you sort of uh, give us a sense of what you think the world they will be coming into from a global perspective will look like over the next few years? Okay. Uh, now, if I, if I had the answer to that question... <laughs> you wouldn't be here. <laughs> I'd be rich. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think we need to be careful. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't really have the imagination to work out what it will be like. Uh, but what I, I would say is, number one, um, the great thing when something like this happens, when you get the entire landscape get shaken in the way it's been shaken in the last six months is that it's going to give rise to new opportunities. Do I know exactly what those opportunities are? No, but I would say go out, seek out those opportunities because they are going to be there. When, when the world changes, suddenly incumbent players get whacked. So, you know, the people who are big people on the block, the person who owned the cinemas, cinemas, not a good business anymore. But people are going to look for other things to do with their time and so on. So I, I rethink, really you know, first thing is to think, uh, to break out of a mindset that the whole world, once this pandemic thing ends, once a vaccine arrives, that somehow the world is going to be revert to being just like 2019. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think there's going to be big structural changes. And then there's going to be a breakdown. You know, it's quite clear that the world where we were all moving toward some sort of an idea that the West was right, that it was all about everybody would converge on the West, that everybody in the world would be having presidential debates where we get to, you know, vote for the next person who will lead our great country. A lot of that has been put in reverse. And countries, I think, have become, instead of, you know, sort of welcoming the opportunity to interact with one another, are now looking very suspiciously at their neighbors. And so I really think we're going to be looking at a world that is a lot less global, but that in turn creates opportunities for smaller countries like our country to sort of say, well, when the going gets tough, everybody needs a Switzerland or a friendly version of Switzerland like Ireland. And so I really think what we need to do is sort of see, you know, rather than, and it's really hard, I know, at a time like this to conceive of anything other than, well, hopefully I'll be able to go down the pub next week and see my mates and do what we used to do. But, you know, to take this opportunity to sort of sit back and think, you know, what are the sort of changes that are out there? 
And then how do I build a life for myself, a life potentially for my family in the future? How do I begin to build that in this changed world? And it's certainly not going to be by looking back. It's going to be much more about looking forward and seeing this is an opportunity. When everything gets shook up, it, to, to, to view it as an opportunity, I have always believed. You know, so we have one version of it. And, and this, uh, you know, like this, this sort of says it all. Uh, we had Brexit. If you recall, up until six months ago, everybody was throwing their underwear up in the air saying, oh my goodness, Brexit, what will we do? We're wrecked. And we had every lobby, every lobby that's been in moaning about, uh, about the pandemic. Before that, the professional moaners were in saying, oh my goodness, the hotel, the tourism industry is going to be murdered by Brexit. The farmers are going to be murdered by Brexit. And what all this ignores and all that noise around us is it ignores human ingenuity, our ability to actually change when the world and our environment changes. And it's going out and embracing that change and working out, how do I cope with this? You know, the world is changing. That's an opportunity rather than building ourselves, digging ourselves into a hole, calling up Joe Duffy. You know, let's break out of that and let's get into sort of saying, you know, how do we build ourselves back out of this? How do we find opportunity? And how do we look after our neighbours while this world is changing? And is that what you call agility? Is that how would you describe what you've just said there? Well, I, I, or is it resilience? What's the what's the best word to kind of sum up that mood you're describing so vividly? Well, I, I think really, uh, you know, we have to be agile. So, you know, if if you, for example, if you own a cinema, right? What can you do? Uh, job number one is you can say. Let's hire Clint Eastwood to go on the telly to say, oh my gosh, we need to do something for the cinemas. Okay, and many people listening probably don't even know who Clint Eastwood is, which is even... Uh, but <laughs> well, they should do, they should do. Yeah, but anyway. It, it simply reflects the fact that Clint Eastwood is about the same age as most American senators. So it means he's, you know, that's who he's lobbying. But uh, the whole point here is we can get, we can get broken up saying, oh my gosh, you know, we need to get out and lobby for financial help and subsidies for cinemas. Instead, turn it on its head, say, what can we do with this thing called a cinema? Probably nobody is going to want it in the same way that they used to do. So what you're talking about is creative destruction, right? That's, that's what the concept is, isn't it? Well, that's... It, does, it doesn't even have to be that bad, Emmett, because <laughs> what I saw was, and I thought it was great, was somebody started up drive-in movies. You know, so the trick is that we find a way to sort of go, gosh, we can still have cinema. Yes. We can do it in our cars and uh, go back to something which is, you know, not a new invention. It's 70 years old or so. And uh, we, we can go back and we can do new things. And uh, those new things will lead to other new things. And we go off on another sort of round of human cre creativity rather than just sitting in our wardrobes <laughs> moaning about the pandemic. Um, I was hoping to do that, actually. That was my plan. That was my business plan, was to sit in a wardrobe and moan about the pandemic. And now you tell me that won't be necessarily what we're, what's needed. But anyway, uh, it's been very interesting, Chad Eamon. It's been very optimistic, very uplifting, uh, and you've been a pure antidote to uh, some of what the things you're talking about that have been going on over the next few months. We won't know for quite some time whether your predictive qualities uh, come true or not. It's probably about six or nine months uh, into next year before we'll know how big the changes have been from this period vaccines or otherwise but i think you're absolutely right there's sort of a sense of the 
the ground is shifting underneath us and when it stops a bit like a an earthquake everyone will kind of dust themselves off and we'll see where we are at that stage but it definitely won't look the same as when we went into it so thank you very much for giving us your time um, a very famous man in the UCD community Professor Amrod as I said his first year accounting lectures are an appointment to view um, anyone who gets lucky to go into them and thank you very much for coming on the business podcast today business impact podcast uh, Professor Walsh great thanks for being there thank you